Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. Raised in North Delta, British Columbia, Sunny Asu was eight years old when he discovered his indigenous heritage. Later on, this revelation would have profound impact on his path. The result would be the dedication of a diverse art practice to the history of his family and the experiences of indigenous people in the colonial state of Canada. Working across painting, sculpture, photography, digital art, and printmaking, Asu has become known for a hybridized approach that merges his pop cultural interests with traditional indigenous techniques and practices. As described by Canadian Art Magazine, his work is crafted with humor, irony, and a sardonic wit that flips contexts to reveal the absurd. Asu received an MFA from Concordia University in 2017 and has been longlisted for Canada's Sobe Art Award three times. Already, his work can be found in collections at the National Gallery of Canada, Seattle Art Museum, and the Vancouver Art Gallery. In October of 2017, he came to Montreal for the installation of his powerful work, Silenced the Burning, that was part of Luff, the Foundation's 10-year anniversary exhibition that explored the concept of gift. Well, Sunny Asu, it's wonderful to have you in the show. I thought it would be interesting to talk um, through a bit of the, the major themes that have come out in your work. Because from what I understand, uh, your work is greatly informed by uh, your personal experiences growing up. Mm -hmm. And there are certain pivotal moments that, you know, have also kind of spurred on ideas and production. Uh, some of the things that I've kind of tuned into are most definitely the impact of trying to get into your family history um, and also the often buried or untold stories that have affected Indigenous peoples in this particular territory. Also, there's something interesting going on around the notion of hybridity mm -hmm. and authenticity, I guess, as its counterpoint, but also commodity and class mm -hmm. and sort of value. Uh, and that comes across in so many of your previous works. So the first time I saw your work was at uh, the Ottawa Art Gallery, and it was a show that was curated by Heather Igliliarte. Mm -hmm. And um, the piece that I was, uh, that you had in there was Artifacts of Authenticity. Right. I thought it was so powerful, so quiet and so powerful at mm -hmm. the same time, you know, sort of working with the sort of the power of institutions and photography, but also kind of ideas about minimalism mm -hmm. <laughs> and like the tyranny that that imposed on on artists for such a long time and now still, I, I would argue. Right. Um, but maybe you could tell me about these pivotal moments in your life and how they have uh, made you the artist that you, you are now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as I, I don't think I really set out to explore any sort of pivotal moment in my personal history or family history when I thought about art as a younger artist, I guess you could say, but they just kind of started coming up. And I think they started coming up in a way to 
place a, a personal or a human narrative on these issues around colonization in Canada. When we think about colonization in Canada, you know, it predates Confederation as we celebrate it this year of 150 years. Um, I think academically, the, the, the aspects of colonization and decolonization have only been going on, you know, under the last 10 years in terms of being a, a broader conversation that's on the, the lips of everybody in the country mm-hmm. now. Um, and I think for me, these, these aspects of narrative became, just like I said, a way to place a human face onto these issues. Because right. I think what's troubling or easy to do is just shuffling it aside of being, it's it's just in the past or right. it doesn't have a face. Yeah. But when I could bring these issues up and, and talk about them from uh, an autobiographical standpoint, and when I talk about autobiography in my work, it's not just about me, it's about my entire family. It's about my entire culture. It's about mm-hmm. my ancestors. It's You can argue that it's about Indigenous people as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I place a face on the issue, like around residential schools and Indian day schools, and I have a piece called Lila's Desk, and it talks about my grandmother's experience in in an Indian day school and what that was like for her to transition from that into a quote-unquote regular high school and her experience with facing that overt racism. Um, I, I'm hoping it's just really going to tug on those those heartstrings that Canadians are kind of famous for um, to really help people understand that there's there's a human issue at play and that it needs to be handled in a compassionate way and not just in a way that is provided through lip service. No, exactly. Also, I, I understand you grew up in kind of suburban British Columbia. Mm-hmm. We're sort of same generation, both born in the 70s, mm-hmm. so no popular culture was kind of your everyday life you know yeah. you live and breathe it yeah, and exactly. uh and that's made its way also into your work whereby you incorporate western popular culture mm-hmm. and key aspects of that and this uh unpacking putting a face on you know the untold or buried stories issues that are facing indigenous peoples so talk a little bit about that i mean how do you approach, you know, that kind of effusion? I was talking about this the other day uh, during a panel in Vancouver that I was part of and talking about um, notions of hybridity and being uh, a person who is of two cultures. I don't think it's easy to mm-hmm. assume that I am of European heritage and indigenous heritage. Um, I don't really associate with any kind of notions of European heritage or iconography through my life or through my work. I can trace roots back to um, European ancestors through Germany and through Ireland. Um, but those those conversations don't become part of my discourse. You know, I grew up in... 80s pop culture. I'm a mm-hmm. child of the 80s. And right. I was marketed to, I was told to buy things. I was told to play with certain toys, read certain comic books, eat certain cereals. Yeah. Um, and as I start to think about my work and myself as a hybrid person, I am an indigenous person of pop culture descent, yeah. <laughs> if you want to think about it, right? And there's yeah. there's a lot of people out there who are like that. 
I've done a recent show with Brendan Tang mm-hmm. um, back in in Abbotsford um, called Ready Player Two, and uh, he explores the same notions of a hybridity from that kind of pop cultural perspective. And um, it's interesting because we're we're finding our roots and we're finding what's important to ourselves as as that generation because um, there's elements of nostalgia to it that that is kind of sing to us in a way as children of pop culture right um so i think those issues of hybridity become important in my work um there are works within you know within my artistic practice that have explored that on a deeper scale Mm-hmm. in the kind of beginning of my career and then I kind of came into this very serious notion of exploring that you know the hidden past of Canada right. and I kind of find that I'm going back into that those explorations now of how pop culture has affected me mm-hmm. and you know what determines wealth from mm. the standpoint of a person who collected comic books as opposed to a person who is entrenched in mm-hmm. modern society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't feel like it's uh, a strategy necessarily that it, I feel like it actually comes from a genuine place that you should engage with the pop cultural mm-hmm. icons you know, yeah. that have informed you. But also it's very disarming, you know, when you're getting into the work. Uh, and you see and you're like, you got records, you know, mm-hmm. on the walls or you've got breakfast cereal boxes. Mm-hmm. You have an entry point into the work, I think, as a, you know, 21st century person, Mm -hmm. especially because you are dealing with very serious subject matter as well, Mm -hmm. that allows people to gain entry to the work. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good observation. Those are two. I see those works as two dramatically different things. But when you put it in that context, I see how that entry becomes important. And um, yeah, it, it's really interesting because when I look at the Breakfast series as an example, I always thought that humor was the the main driving element behind that work, and I never really saw. Other than some of the conversations I was having within those pieces, if you look at the text panels and, mm-hmm. and such and talking about um, indigenous rights and food sovereignty, right. um, and you compare it to Ellipsis, which is the piece with the, the records on the wall, the yeah. copper records of 136 to equal the years of the Indian Act in Canada as mm-hmm. of 2012 when the piece was made. But when you frame it like that, it, it becomes accessible because, you know, as that generation that grew up with... From A-tracks to, to LPs to cassette tapes to CDs and now digital players, it's, you know, these are part of our pop culture vernacular and we see them on a daily basis and it becomes familiar for people and it's easy for them to latch onto and they become um, comfortable with approaching these situations, comfortable in looking at the cereal boxes and embracing the humor and and looking at the heavier messages that are being satirically pointed right. out to them, right. and then feeling oh you know nostalgia over records and you know maybe thinking mm-hmm. you're in the basement mm-hmm. of your house when you're growing up and you're putting up your records on the wall because they're your favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recognizing that there's a, a, a symbol behind them with the use of the copper and the conversations that I'm making. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about the accessibility of the works and the accessibility and the use of pop culture. Um, and, and it makes it, I think it's, it's great, not just in my work, but it, how pop culture makes all that work accessible for people who may not be mm-hmm. entrenched right. in artistic discourses. 
And that's and this is this is the work and these are the people that I also want to reach with my work is because I want to be able to have all people understand about what has gone on in this country and in every colonized place. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they could approach it from that element that feels comfortable to them, right. whether they're, you know, the guy who comes in to patch a hole in the wall during the exposition mm-hmm. or the person who's, you know, hanging out at the opening. Right. Um, yeah, it becomes an aspect of accessibility. Mm-hmm. But you you came to also understand your uh, your heritage as a child. Is mm-hmm. that right? Uh, I kind I came to understand that I was indigenous, that I was Likwetak Kwakiwak as I was a child when I was about eight years old. Um, it, but it wasn't until I was in my early twenties when I really started to explore what it was like to be an indigenous person and what that meant and how that could inform my art. What was going on? Because in, in my 20s, so we're talking like the early 90s here, that was when I was 20. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was only like a few years difference between us. Okay. Yeah. But um, uh, identity politics was some something that I uh, could finally uh, use to articulate uh, my position as a person of color mm. in Canada, right, and uh, um, gave me a way to think through the phrase "Where are you from?" You mm-hmm. know, which I hear all the time, even yeah. still now. Uh, in your twenties, what led you to th- sort of com- become politicized in a sense about your indigenous heritage? Well, just just stepping back to where you're from, that that means something dramatically different to indigenous people. Um, yeah, every time I hear that that phrase, and it, it almost seems like it's it's come back around again. Like I hear more of it um, as as the last few months have gone by. But as an indigenous person, where you're from, it, it roots you in your culture and it roots you in your heritage. I've had people who that want to know where I'm from when I'm talking about my work to make sure that I am correct and who mm-hmm. I am claiming to be. So when right. I could tell them that I am. Likwetak, from the village of Sakwalutan, and I now currently live in Campbell River, um, and my ancestral name is Gwagwadaka. Um, that's a way for them to understand and to know that I am who I am, mm-hmm. and they could see they could see and understand a community that claims me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an interesting thing you're saying mm-hmm. because um, when people ask me where I'm from, I actually. You know, I say, you know, my father's Chinese, my mother's Filipino, but I, getting back to the sense of hybridity and where pop culture becomes your other, you know, yeah. like where you're from kind yeah. of thing, I I know that I am deeply Western. Mm. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, you know, if you, if you don't see me, you know, you're just hearing my voice. Yeah. It's like, I'm totally normative, right? Right, yeah. But yeah. otherwise, you know, on a visual register, there's yeah. all kinds of questions that come up. Mm-hmm. And uh, for you, when someone asks you where you're from, there's another edge to it, mm-hmm. you know, because for me, I was born in Canada. And so I always get deeply offended. It's like, what? You know, right. so we understand that there's a dominant whiteness that mm-hmm. that is um, what is equated with Canadianness. Yeah. And in that perhaps in that same way, there are expectations, too, around a person's appearance 
when you know an indigenous person's appearance right and that seems to be what you're also dealing with yeah. in addition to you know it's claiming it mm-hmm. and understanding it but also being faced with a lot of questions yeah because for me uh, you know where you're from and from an indigenous an indigenous standpoint is important because i don't pass as an indigenous person i pass as a white person and so i think what i was getting at with my earlier comment about you know where are you from it's um you know i've had where i've had to say it to defend where I am from, so people know yep. that I'm not appropriating. Right. Um, but I've also had people come up to me in in a context that isn't about my art or about my identity and just ask me. For some reason, they could see something in me that says, this person is Indigenous and I'm going to go ask them where they're from. Interesting. Yeah. Right. And so that, to me, that always, it, it, it's happened a number of times and it always catches me off guard mm. and it always makes me feel connected and happy yeah because as a white passing individual it's it's something that i i'm not faced with all with all the time mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so it becomes important mm. in that conversation but i totally get that you know for people who are from here um who are uh settlers of mm-hmm. you know other non-european heritage it becomes offensive and you know i've, I've been around friends that you know are south asian or mm-hmm. or asian or or from wherever, and uh, you know, they, they, the question is asked of them, and they find offense to it. Yeah, tell me about uh, language because you are also working on learning your indigenous language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just started. My first lesson was last week, and uh, it's an extremely hard language to learn. But I'm I'm trying. Mm-hmm. I'm going. It's mm-hmm. a it's an immersive. It's just it's a community. It's a gathering of the community. Like we get together once a week with. Um, a few elders in the room and people who have learned the language throughout their life who are either fluent or semi-fluent. Learning the language is important to me and sharing it with my daughter and having her learn it is also important because our language is on the brink of extinction. I mean, I've always wanted to learn the language, but one of the inspirations for um, for really learning language and seeing how it's going to affect my art has been uh, Marianne Nicholson, who was a fellow Kwakwakwak artist. And... um, her, her, the Kwakwakwila language for her um, has become an important focal point in her practice and in her work. Um, and I respect her and I, I am completely inspired by her mm. and what she's doing with her work and with the study of the language because it is important. I lived in Montreal for almost five years and um, at first I really wanted to, to learn the language because I, I felt like I had to learn it to be part of mm-hmm. this place. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I started to, to, as my time here started to grow, I kind of felt that language for me became politicized where it was felt that I had to learn the language Mm-mm-mm. to really embrace Quebec culture. I had to learn the language. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Like, I really, I think that's amazing that the language and the culture is so ingrained here. But when you're an Indigenous person um, with a language that's on the verge of extinction, it's it became a political way for me to fight back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you've made a very informed choice, you mm-hmm. know, right there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the piece in the show, Silenced mm-hmm. the Burning. Um as I mentioned earlier, uh, I I thought it was important to have a piece that speaks to the potlatch ceremonies, which were, uh, in many accounts, uh, Marcel Mauss's essay sur le don, which is like the 1928 um, sociological study that informed so many 
other theorists and writers thinking about gift economy. It's interesting because you think about that, like the whole aspect of that utopian future is built on that gift economy. And I'm not mm. saying that because, you know, if we adopt the gift economy today and start working out, we're going to have a utopian future, you know, down the road. You know, it's just, it's just a matter of trying to embrace new ways of thinking that are right. based on centuries-old practices. Right. And that could become important, especially when we see this market economy just start the tank and mm -hmm. we see mm -hmm. the disparity between the wealthy mm -hmm. and the poor, mm -hmm. right? And when you think about the Palach, um, anyone who was in attendance, whether you're wealthy or, or poor, um, would walk away with something. You know, and that's and that becomes important. And I was, you know, in thinking about the potlatch, I was recently um, uh, witness to the canoe journeys that happened, uh, that traveled to Campbell River this year to Liquata territory. And these were canoes that came from all over the northwest coast. And we had um, indigenous peoples as far away as New Zealand and New York coming to our territory to share their culture, to share their language, to share their songs. And at the end of every presentation, um, there, there were four days of presentations um, running nearly probably 18 hours a day. Um, at every at every end of every presentation, the nation would step up and, and give everyone in the big house something. Wow. You know, it could be, you know, it was a t-shirt, it mm -hmm. was a little paddle for the kids, it could have been candy, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever it was, people walked away with something. And, you know, that's, I really appreciate witnessing that because it really, it really helps inform my practice, I think, because mm -hmm. I really want people to walk away with something, right? I really want them to walk away with a bit of information because I think it's important. Well, the 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 information that is imparted by Silence the Burning, and it's something that so many Canadians don't know, mm -hmm. is that potlatch is banned. Yeah. Um, and so this piece really, you have a few pieces that speak to the potlatch ban, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe wa walk us through um, this particular piece. Uh, yeah, well, Silence the Burning um, is an installation of 67 uh, painted uh, elk hide drums, and they're painted with the iconography of the Hudson's Bay blanket. Um, and to me, that's the, if when you see the piece, it's gray, gray on gray. And there's a, a darker gray line that kind of goes across the drum face. And that is the, the single color bar line of a Hudson's Bay blanket. Um, the Hudson's Bay blanket for me is contentious because it was used by the colonial government to spread smallpox and tuberculosis amongst the first peoples all across Canada, all across North America. Um, but it was also used by the potlatch practicing peoples as gifts um, during the potlatch time. Um, so I wanted to indicate that through that act of genocide that this is why these drums are sitting here on the floor silent. Um, but the silence is also because of the ban. So from 1884 to 1951, uh, it was completely illegal for any Indigenous person in Canada to practice their ceremonial customs and that was and it was colloquially known as the potlatch ban because it was it was the ban was inspired by the potlatch practicing peoples um I, I don't think the government really understood why these people would give away their wealth but maybe they wouldn't give it away to the colonial governments and the colonial government's mandate has always been assimilation and genocide and, and taking taking from the indigenous peoples. So when you see these indigenous peoples giving to themselves but not giving to the colonial government, 
you know, I think that was one of the impetus for shutting it down. So the piece um, symbolizes that silencing of those drums for 67 years. Uh, the potlatch um, system moved underground for those 67 years. Um, they would commonly shift um, to holding ceremonies around Christian holidays. So around Christmas, we'd hold winter potlatches and we'd say, oh, it's just a Christmas gathering. And so we were able to kind of like sneak our way through it. But they would still be commonly busted. So when you see um, Northwest Coast artifacts and art anywhere in the world um, from that time frame or before, it's because they were they were stolen from those people during the potlatch ban. Indian agents would, would confiscate these works and sell them on the black market. And my grandfather knew that was happening. My great-great-grandfather knew that was happening, and Silence the Burning is, is about an experience that he had with an Indian agent in the early 19-teens, I believe it was, mm-hmm. where um, the Indian agent came up to him and said, I found out that you're going to be hosting a potlatch, and you know that's illegal, so I'm going to give you an ultimatum. Uh, you can either give up your regalia to me freely, or you can host your potlatch and I'm going to come to it. I know where it's going to be. I'm going to bust it. I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to confiscate your stuff and I'm going to fine you. But the Indian agent said, I'm going to be a nice guy and I'm going to give you a few days to think about this. And when I come back, you could tell me your answer. And so uh, Chief Billy Asu, my great-great-grandfather, went to his people and uh, told him of the ultimatum that he had been given. And he asked for their guidance, and they told him that we can't lose you as our leader. Uh, it isn't fair for you to be going to jail for us. It isn't fair for you to be losing your ceremony regalia, your potlatch regalia. Um, so just give it up. It's not worth it. It's just stuff. We can make more. Um, we can get more. We can trade more. We can obtain more. And with that, um, he dragged his potlatch regalia down to the beach, and he burnt it all. I believe he did that because he would rather have seen that work be gifted back to the ancestors as opposed to sitting in a museum as an inanimate object with a number. So when you see this, you know, and I I was in the Field Museum in Chicago um, a few months ago and I saw some objects in there that had been collected from that time frame and they have numbers. They're attributed to numbers and they're attributed to large groups of people, not specific nations or villages and that's sad mm-hmm. there was this um I, I don't know the entire quote um off by heart but it's by uh it's a uh, chief uh Oweglis, and uh, he was uh, saying to friends boas in the late mm-hmm. uh 1800s um talking about um the potlatch ban and assimilation and he's saying um if you've come I'm paraphrasing, if you've come to forbid us dance, be gone. Um, but if not, you're welcome here. Right. So and that's contrary to what the government's mandate was. The government mandate was like, I just we just want to assimilate these people. We want to get them into the colonial construct and just have them be regular old Canadians right. under the colonized regime. Mm-hmm. Um, but Oagulus was recognizing that this is our territory. This is our livelihood. This is this is our place. This is how we do things here. And we are going to welcome you here. And you could stay here as long as you want. We can live in harmony if you let us do our thing and you do your thing. 
And that always struck me as something really powerful because what if mm-hmm. we did that? Mm-hmm. And you take a look at the Canada we know today, the Canada that is promoted on the world stage. It is you can come here and do your own thing. You can be your own people. You can mm-hmm. experience your own religion. You can mm-hmm. practice your own customs. You can live within this country. That's how we're marketed. Right. Factuality is the opposite, (laughs) right? But it's just, that's what Canada, the colonial construct has embraced is that welcoming aspect of you could do your thing here. But back in the late 1800s, and even till today, it's not the way that it is. Yeah. So many things go through my mind. You know, I think about, uh, um, I guess, the discourse of multiculturalism and which was absolutely all about that, you know, um, there were always conditions and that's like you could exercise your language and customs and um, traditions, but yeah. know that <laughs> but. <laughs> there is, um, you know, a kind of unspoken rule around here that uh, you kind of go along with dominant culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, as, as long as you kind of do that yeah. publicly, but you do your own thing privately, yeah. it's kind of okay. So mm-hmm. that's sort of on a really grand scale and a really massively um, destructive scale what banning the potlatch, you know, was doing, was forcing potlatch underground. Some, I love it because it's like very deserto yeah. in that you always find ways. People will always find ways to, to, to be who they need to be to mm-hmm. exercise, you know, the things that are important to them. And uh, it, it eventually became legal again. Right. And how did that happen? In 1951, they repealed the law. And do you know, was there pressure on the government uh, at all? Or? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know offhand why the law was repealed. Um, it, you know, now that we talk about this, I've never actually thought about that before. I just know that it was repealed. It was yeah, taken okay. out of that, that aspect of the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been interesting to see that there wasn't really a resurgence because it was always really? just there. Ah, um, interesting. You know, and I take a look at, you know, even my own personal narrative. Um, you know, like, a, you know, you mentioned earlier in the beginning, like I grew up in the suburbs and I was far removed from my culture and I didn't have an experience to understand my culture until I was in my early 20s. Um, and I was asked why today mm-hmm. by someone at the, the mm-hmm. tour. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, well, I think it's just because my grandparents who I was raised by um, were providing a better life uh, for their son and daughter. And um, when I came along, I was as part of that construct as well. So they, they left the home community, they left the reserve, and they moved to the suburbs to um, be away from that place because the reserve at that point wasn't a, wasn't a good place to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was I was raised as your everyday average suburban white kid right and um yeah that's why it became important to explore those aspects of my personal culture um but now you know being back in the community and seeing family members move back to the community um you know either for the first time like myself or moving back to the community after going to school or being away for 10 or 20 years and getting involved in culture um culture when i see it in our newsletter is a very kind of colloquial term it's just like it's culture 
Yeah, right. It's culture night. We'll see you there. Six thirty. <laughs> it's language night. We'll see you there. Five thirty. Okay. Um, you know, it just it's 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 fun and it's engaging. Mm-hmm. It's and like just your everyday life. It's, it's not like when you're removed from your heritage culture, it kind of like gets put up on a pedestal, mm-hmm. I find. And then it's like, and it always is very precious, but it's kind of intimidating too. It is. And it's like, how do I access this? Yeah. And so you've immersed yourself into it, I've you know, and to. it's part of your everyday life. Yeah. And, I mean, na- and that's kind of amazing. It's kind of a beautiful thing to be able to just engage uh, in that. Um, it is. And, and it become, you know, like, culture <laughs> yeah exactly but you're, you know you're, it is intimidating because I, I am experiencing at, at a, I'm experiencing culture at a community level my personal community for the first time mm-hmm. I've gone out of my way to learn about my community to bring information that I've learned through study back to my community and asking people like my grandmother when she was alive and her sisters my aunties and my uncles yeah. um, you know what aspects meant like what does this mean what did the potlatch banning mean to us what did the loss of language mean to us did you experience this in residential school did you experience that in indian day school you know i'm learning all this stuff in these books that are written probably by white people what's true what's not true and that was my engagement with the community before i moved back home Um, but now that i'm back home i'm I'm experiencing my culture on a a fundamentally different level Mm -hmm. i'm witnessing it and learning about it from people who have been part of that not necessarily are my family members but they're part of the community who have lived it all their lives language is second nature to them mm. you know if they're semi-fluent it almost is, it's it's second nature right um you know dancing and singing and drumming um, is second nature to them um you know i take a look at someone like my my cousin wamish and he's he's still in high school i think he's in grade 12 this year and he's been involved in culture mm-hmm. all his life mm. um i made him one of his his first drums that i painted a spider-man on for him oh, yeah. and um i remember his mom telling me that he had to take it away from him because she was scared that it was going to get too damaged right because he was using it yeah and that for me that was awesome you know when you hear about at the time when you know an, an eight-year-old kid is just hammering away on the drum that you made that you know usually just sits on a wall yeah. is is amazing it's and quite so a compliment <laughs> it is it is totally right so yeah. for me it's like how do i access this mm-hmm. you know i'm here i'm sitting in the big house and there's people doing their thing and i'm looking over there at the guys at the drum and i'm like you know what i i don't i, I think i'm too old to go up and dance around a fire right now um not that it, it would not be important it would be important for me to learn for sure um but for me i think it, it would be more important to sit at the drum mm. If I could find the courage to ask, how do I do that? Right. 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 And so I was thinking about this the other day on my way to the language class is like for me, because I feel intimidated by asking, how do I get Mm -hmm. connected to the singing Mm -hmm. and the drumming? Language becomes the accessible point for me. So I'm sitting in the classroom and I'm meeting elders for the first time that's, that come from the various Kwakwakiwak nations that are there to help the Likwata people discover their language. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes accessible. Yeah. Because there is no expectations of right or wrong. It's just you're here, you're going to do your best, and you're going to learn. I learned to count to three. Yeah. <laughs> I learned to count to 10, but Only I can remember lesson. three. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for the first time, I discovered that I discovered the name of my village, mm. you know, Sakwalutan. Yeah. And I got to say, I am from Sakwalutan. 
right? And that and that becomes important to me because I am working and making art where my ancestors are from. And that became an important realization the first couple of days that we were living there in, in Campbell River. Yeah. Um, was that I went for a walk one morning and I'm just like, I'm breathing in the sea air and I'm like, I am taking footsteps where my ancestors took footsteps. Mm -hmm. um, I get to go home and I get to make art where they made art. And that has reinvigorated my practice. I feel like I am exploring again right. and making again. Right. Not that I wasn't. It's just like I feel confident in that exploration mm -hmm. and that making. And all these conversations I have around this previous work goes into that new work and vice versa. So when I'm making the new stuff, it, it, something else clicks and I learn something new and I bring that back to the community. So it's a, it's an inner cycle as well. It is, yeah. yeah. That, you know, kind of connects you, you know, very deeply with a lineage and reinforms and, you know, that kind of uh, emanation out, mm -hmm. you know, will um, likely be something that sort of younger Indigenous people, mm -hmm. artists in general, will see as a, as a, a kind of interesting approach. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of the work, um, physically, mm -hmm. typically you had it directly on the floor. Mm -hmm. Why on the floor? Why not on a plinth? Why, you know, I mean, we have it on a low platform. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just sort of to protect the work a little bit. But. For sure, yeah. Well, I, it's on the floor and it's stacked because I wanted to reference the the stacking of Hudson's Bay blankets that were given out during the potlatch. And that was in reference to a number of photographs I've seen um, over my life with just these mountains and mountains of, of Hudson's Bay blankets just waiting to be handed out. And even over in, uh, in Gatineau at the, uh, the former Civilization Museum, you know, in, in the Northwest Coast longhouses, when you kind of first walk in and you go down the stairs and there's just the longhouses from the entire coast. I don't know if they're still there anymore or not. Um, but when you walk into the Kwakwakiwak longhouse, there's a, there's a wall of Hudson's Bay blankets. And in the middle of that is just this video of, of the territory um, with um, the recording of a chief talking about the importance of the potlatch. And um, that was the inspiration. For, for that series. Silence of the Burning is the second large install of 67 that I've done. And I've done uh, a number of smaller installations of the drums. Um, and the stacking becomes important because it also references the silencing and the collection of Indigenous and Northwest Coast art and artifacts during that time frame, um, where they just become piled and numbered and put in a corner. Um, Sunny Asu, thank you so much for speaking with me today and being part of the show. Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Centre in Montreal.